Hello and welcome to the Drabblecast, episode 32. The Drabblecast is a weekly flash fiction podcast magazine that features strange stories by strange authors for strange listeners such as yourself. I'm your host, Norm Sherman. I thought I'd give everyone a heads up about some changes you'll be seeing in the Drabblecast world over the next few weeks. One, we'll be starting our own forum on the website soon, where our listeners can discuss stories, exchange ideas, throw out suggestions, and make fun of each other's moms. I'm looking forward to seeing our listeners connect with each other, and to connect with you guys myself. There'll be a place for story discussion, a place where writers can chat, a place where listeners can contribute cool things like fan art and so forth, and a place where we can conduct our various ridiculous contests and competitions. Second, we'll soon be adding a PayPal donation option. A lot of people have asked us, why don't we have one already? And I've just responded because I didn't think we were quite ready yet. If you've listened to us from the beginning, you've been witness to a great deal of evolution in production quality, story quality, general quality of everything. That's usually the way podcasts go, and I appreciate you sticking with us through our growing pains. One big step that took us to the next level was paying our authors. We get a ton of submissions now, and it lets us be much more picky. Unfortunately, the pickier we get, the more expensive it gets for us. We're going to put up a donation option, hoping that a few of you listeners will help a brother out. I think we're at that stage now. We've effectively found our groove, and with a little listener support here and there, I think we'll be all right. Our mission statement hasn't changed, though, and it never will. There are millions of writers out there, millions of great ideas, and we don't care about your publishing credits or the books you've sold. We just want great, weird, funny, disturbing, or thought-provoking stories that we can chuck out to our listeners in their 15-minute drive to work. I love flash fiction. I mean, deep character development is great, and so are big, arching plot lines, but I don't know, maybe it's... Maybe it's my adult-onset ADHD. Short, short stories are where it's at. And speaking of which, we have a great thought-provoking yarn for you folks this week. It's called The Warden's Last Day by Andon Sharp. Andon writes stories in the basement of his Seattle house, where he fantasizes about seeing the sun one day if it ever stops raining. The inspiration for Warden's Last Day came from an experience in the mid-1990s when he came to know several activists for democracy in Yugoslavia. During the Balkans' war, Yugoslavia came apart, and thousands, perhaps tens of thousands of people, were murdered by war criminals. Some of those criminals are still at large. So, without further ado, The Warden's Last Day, by Andon Sharp. The deputy warden of my facility led the way down the cell block and nodded to the guard, who spoke quietly into his radio. A clink echoed through the dozen cells, and the twelve pea-green doors slid open in unison as if they were dancers. The deputy warden, a man with a military haircut wearing a business suit, stood before the only cell that held a prisoner. Putting his hands in his trouser pockets, he said, It's time. Our small group of men walked slowly, almost reverently, down a long hall to the death chamber. It was eleven at night, and only a few shouts of men in the lifer block penetrated the concrete walls of death row. I brushed a gray hair off my shoulder. 
My name is Michael Zlochnuk, and I am a warden of the U.S. Federal Penitentiary at Magdalena, New Mexico. I was proud of my prison, but it was a bittersweet day, my last day at work, because I was retiring from the Bureau of Prisons after 35 years. It was also the last day in history a man would be put to death by a government. I was in a talkative mood. I turned to my deputy, whose name was Vic. Vic, let me tell you how I became warden here. Uh, if you like. I was 23 years old, a refugee from Yugoslavia, or what used to be called Yugoslavia. Do they teach children about the war? Uh, I don't know. Well, in the 1990s, People in Southeast Europe began killing each other. Have you heard of Croatia, Serbia, Slovenia, or Bosnia? I was in grade school, Vic said. Well, my family, which was Christian, lived in a predominantly Muslim neighborhood of Sarajevo. We were driven out, and my grandfather died as we fled. We buried him in a park. You mean a city park? Vic asked. The cemeteries, they were overflowing. I was a young policeman when the war broke out. I joined the militia to defend my people, but I was captured and held in a prison camp. I touched my left ear absently. Friends told me I did this when I talked about the war. Part of it had been shot off in a skirmish. A bit of execution business interrupted my thoughts. Are all of the witnesses in place? I asked Vic. Uh, the vice president arrived half an hour ago. Excellent, I said. He promised to come to my retirement party tomorrow. Did you know that he was a young army intelligence officer with the NATO forces that ended the war? Vic shrugged. Yes, he found me starving in a camp, and he asked me many questions. We became friends, and soon I was on the plane to America. He got me a job in his hometown as a policeman. A few years later, he sent me a flyer advertising jobs with the Bureau of Prisons, and I became a prison guard. He ran for Congress, and he helped me rise in the Bureau. Business interrupted my thoughts again. Has the apparatus been tested and certified? The technicians are ready, and the drugs for the injection were approved. Vic said. A priest read silently from a Bible two paces behind me. Anyway, the congressman and I kept in touch. War creates a bond like no other. Have you seen war? In Iraq, Vic replied. I was a lieutenant in an infantry company. Then you know the worst of human suffering, I said. The screams of the innocent... They still come to me in my dreams. Vic agreed, his hazel eyes vacant with remembrance. The congressman and I found a common passion, I continued. Abolishing capital punishment. After seeing what people do to each other in the name of their country, we agreed that state-sanctioned murder was immoral. Something changed in Vic's face. It seems you had a more compelling reason than moral outrage to be rid of the death penalty, he said. 
I glanced at him, his face stony and grim. We were nearly halfway to the place of execution. <laughs> so you believe the lies told about me too? They are irrelevant now, I said, waving my hand. Let me finish my story. The death penalty issue was settled after the Gardner case. I knew him and witnessed his execution, and like everyone else, I didn't believe his plea of innocence. Well, until the DNA evidence came out, Vic said. Yes. When it proved conclusively months after his death that he was innocent of all the Red River killings, the country turned against capital punishment. The congressman, now a senator, led the effort to abolish executions. I testified at his hearings. I visited every congressman and senator. The president signed the bill weeks later. Everyone said my story was the most persuasive. With the stroke of a pen, the last country on earth that executed men and women banned it. <laughs> Everything happened so amazingly fast. And today is the last day executions are legal in the U.S., Vic said. And there is only one prisoner left. You. For a short time, I said. I have friends. The guard in our party, a husky black man, spoke again into his radio, and a door opened at the end of the long hall. Another guard stepped out and took a position in the middle of the hall, like a large stone dropped in a stream, forcing water to one side. The only exit from the hall was through the door. Vic stopped our journey and took a deep breath. You failed, he said to me. Failed? Failed at what? I responded. I think you'd better advise your thinking about failure, Vic. Anyone with eyes can see that I am a successful man. I am head of a large, well-managed institution, at least until my retirement is official at midnight, and I had a hand in ending one of the most difficult controversies facing our country. I can rest easy. Your plan failed. You hoped to escape, but your luck ran out, Vic said, gesturing for me to continue through the door. You're speaking in non-sequiturs. We entered a room with no furniture and a single weak bulb in the ceiling. Light from the room beyond slipped underneath its door. The guard spoke into his radio, and he listened. They need a few more minutes, he said to my deputy. Vic sighed. Tell me about Istok Bridge in Yugoslavia. Tell me about October 15th, 1993. <laughs> I will not discuss lies. It was a Friday morning, Vic said. A relief convoy with food approached Istok Bridge. The militia, known as Voiskenad Osveta, the Army of Vengeance, held the bridge and promised safe passage. They carried nothing of the sort. When the convoy reached the bridge, it was stopped. We heard weapons being cocked. A young Muslim woman, sent from a refugee camp to meet the convoy, hid in some brush. Do not mention that senile old bitch. She heard a man addressed by the militiamen as Colonel give the order to open fire. <laughs> this conversation is pointless. She said part of the colonel's left ear was missing. I touched my ear. 
The terrorists had wiped out one of our units the day before. The enemy was smuggling weapons hidden in food convoys. Sixty-three aid workers died outright. The wounded were murdered. One hundred ten died in all. Among them were Americans from an aid society run by a church. Everything is a lie. That old woman, she was eighty years old at the trial. The lies were fed by her dirty heathens. You knew that someday you would be caught and tried for war crimes, Vic said. The Gardner case was your opportunity to escape death and keep your career. Banning executions was kind of insurance, and you nearly succeeded. <laughs> it doesn't matter anyway. The vice president knows the injustice that's being done to me. The trial was illegal. It was rushed. The old woman only came forward a few months ago when she saw her revenge against my people slipping away. The vice president understands. He'll stop this insanity. Without me, he would never have the public recognition that put him in power. He owes me. I was triumphant. I held the trump card, a friend in power. A moment later, the door to the next room opened, and the brilliance blinded me. When my eyes adjusted, I saw a table, a telephone on a wall, and a large piece of glass on the opposite wall. It was a one-way mirror. The witnesses were behind it. A digital clock read 1147. He's cutting things close. Vic and the two guards followed, as did the priest whose black robes of the Serbian Orthodox Church rustled over the floor. A man in a surgical mask approached me. Please lie down, he said. I hesitated, and the guards led me to a table with straps for my arms and legs. I didn't resist, because I, I, I believed it would all end well. Why play games? The guard strapped me down, and there was a knock on the door. It was the Vice President of the United States. Oh, my friend, my dear friend, I knew you would come, I said, relieved. You certainly waited until the last minute. <laughs> Hello, Mike, he said. Tomorrow we will drink the whiskey you enjoy so much. I'm afraid not, he said. What? We have a deadline. He looked down on me with his classic, knowing smile, the one that had intimidated so many informants in Yugoslavia. We have to execute you before midnight. It's the law. But you helped me escape the war. I did indeed. I had to watch you. I learned what happened at Istok Bridge and I took a statement from the witness who identified you. But she disappeared into the chaos of the war. I took a chance that I might find her again. What better way to keep you close than to make you depend on me? But we worked together to outlaw executions. I repaid your kindness. You did, and I thank you. I admit I was worried about the prospect that you would get away with your crime because of the new law. The clock was my enemy, as well as you. Then an old contact I had in Sarajevo emailed me about an elderly woman who told him about a man missing part of his ear. My patience was rewarded. But 
It was war. And this is justice. Goodbye, Colonel Zlochnak. I'm sorry you'll miss your retirement party. And your retirement. The vice president addressed Vic. Please proceed, he said. The president has denied clemency. My eyes closed in disbelief. The man who had given me a new life, whom I had helped to power in my own small way, had wished me dead, and he would get his way. I opened my eyes, and the clock read 11.56. Then I felt a prick in my arm. Well, that was our story. I hope you liked it. I'm not going to dally here because I'm also trying to get this episode wrapped up before midnight. Feedback from episode 28, The Hog-Faced Man, by Mark Fuel. This was one of our first ghost stories. It got mixed response. There were some that thought it was, meh, pretty good. Some others who thought it was good, but weren't crazy about the way things wrapped up. And others, like Blue Pete, who said... As the father of two young children, I found this story sweet and creepy at the same time. That's hard to do. I had no problem with the ending. I think Blue Pete hit it on the head. I like stories that blend contrasting emotions, the sweet and sour sauces of literature. Hmm, I might order Chinese. Well, the Drabblecast uses a Creative Commons attribution, non-commercial, no derivatives license, which means you should force all your friends and coworkers to listen and subscribe to us. But you can't change it, and you should make sure that your friends don't have to pay for it. Throw your comments up on the website, send in your stories and feedback to Drabblecast at yahoo.com, and tune in next week for episode 33. I'll give you a hint. If you liked episode 29, Dermot Glennon's Code Brown, you won't want to miss next week's Drabblecast. Our staff is made up of a guy named Kendall Marchman who looks kind of like a monkey, a guy named Luke Coddington who thinks he's hot shit because he did better than average on the GRE test, and a guy named Norm Sherman who writes songs about dinosaurs and whale milking. Check them out at www.normsherman.com. We're all reminding you to get a good 401k plan this week and retire early because you never know when your last day is going to be. And noise fill the room like the smoke Laughter and curses spilled like booze from a glass Words were all slurred when spoke Yes, words were all splurred when slow